I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. At Sleep Outfitters Outlet, great sleep is a big deal. Save 40 to 60% every day on every Sealy, Stearns & Foster, and Tempur-Pedic. Queens as low as $249. Customer exchanges, closeouts, and floor samples. Inventory changes daily, so come in for your dream deal today. With no credit needed financing, expert advice, and up to 60% off retail, it's never been easier to get the sleep and savings you deserve. Go to sleepoutfittersoutlet.com for financing details and to find a store near you. I was lost. This week on the podcast, Ulf from Ace of Base, the third biggest selling artist to have come out of Sweden behind Roxette and, of course, ABBA. Believe the hype, you're in trouble. This is a surprising story, one of violence. The fan brings her with a knife on her throat and drags her up the, the stairs. And a story of a misspent youth. Suddenly having a, a flirtation with the extreme right. How does that come about? This is about popularity and unpopularity. They really killed us in media in Sweden. <laughs> this is not one to miss, so don't go away. Ulf is full of surprises. This was the beginning of the end. Well, hi, Ulf. I mean, this has been a, 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 I don't know, it's been a lifetime ago that I was in Gothenburg and I was in a bar uh, for MTV and that is where I met Ace of Base and you were there, of course. Um, yeah. Long, long, long... <laughs> Uh, time ago. You're looking very smart in a suit. You just said that you've been to see your lawyer, so I guess the suit was for the lawyer, not for me. Oh, well, sometimes I do dress up, not only in t-shirts and other things, but uh, I like to, to dress up. Yeah, I've been with my lawyers today, running a little bit back and forth in this beautiful uh, spring, spring day in Stockholm. Sun is out and, and everybody's very happy to, um, to uh, get out of the uh, COVID times and winter times. So let me take you back to Gothenburg. Um, when I do this podcast, I always talk about the, the, the very early years of people and what sort of music their parents listened to. 
And uh, when your musical tastes changed and what did they go to? How did they diverge from your parents? Yeah, that's a big diversion because my father was a jazz fan. He only had this um, very thick, um, it was not vinyl, but it was kind of vinyl, but it was different material. You couldn't bend them. You know, these old from the 50s and the 60s. Um, and uh, he had a lot of records at home and he listened to a lot of jazz music. Uh, my grandfather on my mother's side, he played a lot of piano, more classical music. So I didn't really have a lot of pop culture from home, um, but I developed my own pop culture um, from actually hearing ABBA in the 70s and then Kraftwerk 1979, when I was a little small little kid, uh, nine years old. Uh, so that was very completely different from my, my parents' music. However, my father was a computer engineer already in the 70s. So he bought me a Commodore 20 and I got very excited to program. And my first program I did was a synthesizer. So that matched very well with Kraftwerk. And when they came out with Computer World, Computer Welt in German, um, it was really for me, it was like being religious. I just saw these computers taking over the world. You can do everything with them, including fantastic music. So it was kind of inspired by my dad, but not through the music, but through his profession. Were they culturally aware? I mean, I know you say your dad was into jazz music. Um, I don't know what, you know, you presumably were brought up by your dad and mum. I, um, yeah. I don't know, yeah, okay. Uh, were they culturally aware of what was, what was going on uh, in, in the music scene in Sweden? Uh, no, not at all. My mother, she's a child psychologist, or was, and my father uh, was, a, was, a, was a mathematics and, and computer engineer. So they were very isolated in their world. Uh, what they could hear of the that time modern music, or, uh, well, it was not that modern music, but it was, it was synth music and, and so forth, the pop culture was a lot of noise from my bedrooms way too late in the evenings. So uh, they, I don't think there was a good start for them to like the pop culture uh, uh, early 80s because it was just loud music that woke them up in the middle of the night. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned, so, two, you mentioned yeah. two bands there. ABBA, of course, uh, um, you know, I mean, forever uh, connected with uh, uh, Sweden, Eurovision, and actually uh, were for a long period um, not that popular in Sweden, which was seems mm. quite weird today, yeah. uh, considering how big they are. And the other one, of course, uh, Kraftwerk. Kraftwerk from Dusseldorf uh, in Germany. Now, that album came out in 78, and you would have been eight years old. Uh, the ABBA won the Eurovision Song Contest when you were four. Um, when was it that you actually got into Kraftwerk? Because I, 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 if I look back at an eight-year-old me, you know, I think I was listening to, I don't know, some really dreadful crap at that point. <laughs> well, I think it comes down to that we had uh, friends of mine in my class, their big brothers, they started to listen to Kraftwerk. So that's, I think, when I was in their home, I thought they were cool guys, their big brothers, they were two years older. Uh, so I kind of, that's how I got into the, to the synth music. They were like, they loved synth music. And of course, when Depeche Mode came out, 81, so I was speaking spell, it was just a wow moment for all of us. It was all inspired by friends, big brothers. So I what appealed saying. to you about ABBA? Um, well, um, I, I, I just love the melodies. And then uh, I didn't really follow the, the media storm around ABBA, how bad it was, because I didn't read the newspapers that much. But of course, I have realized 
afterwards, uh, especially when we became uh, successful, when you stopped studying Abba's history, that people basically had the Abba albums hidden behind the stereos, didn't have them among the other uh, vinyls. And basically there was not one positive word written about ABBA until 1990. Uh, and then they had this movie coming out in, in uh, Australia, which I don't remember the name of now, but then uh, Polar and by Polygram decided to do this ABBA Gold uh, album, which became number one everywhere. And suddenly everybody came out being ABBA fans forever. So that was kind of a refreshing moment, 1990, which actually helped us quite a lot because then suddenly everybody talked about ABBA again. And they were four people, we were four people, but two guys wrote the songs. There was one blondette, brunette, one blonde. And uh, I was together with Jenny just before the band uh, started. And Jonas was the big brother. So we were family, they were family. So it's a lot of um, um, common grounds. And of course, pop from Sweden. So it, it that did help us that everybody, it was quite a boring question though, to have that uh, everywhere in the world. How does it feel to be compared to ABBA? And the answer was always the same. It's, uh, it's, it's very flattering and honored. Yeah. <laughs> what did your parents want you to do in your life when you were young? Uh, well, they put both academics. I am a little bit now when I still I have kids myself. Uh, they all they 18, 16 and 14. Uh, obviously, very much in the age where I I should have taken, um, you know, if I could study or take whatever path. Um, I'm surprised they didn't push me more to be academic because I think they were very pushed by their parents to actually study and, and go to, you know, all these high schools and, and be oh, specialized in different sectors. And maybe because they were so pressured and that was a different time in the fifties and so forth, uh, they didn't put enough pressure on me. And it was kind of, the eighties was quite wild in Sweden. And uh, I, I, I wish they actually did push me more, but on the other hand, I wouldn't start to do music the way I did if they would have pushed me. So. I'm not, not happy that I didn't, but I have to rethink this now when I have kids, how much to push and not push and how to see what are they really interested in. And so it's a, it's a fine balance of everything. I mean, you come from a very, what seems to be a very stable, a very intelligent family. And yet, and I know this is a, an, an area you don't really want to talk about, but I want to ask one question only. You had a flirtation with the extreme right in a band called Commit Suicide. And you've, you know, you've denounced uh extremism since and you said uh that that was a mistake i think those both things are true aren't they that you've done those yeah um but it just sort of seems to me how does you know a guy from a very nice what seems to be you know a middle class intelligent family mother a psychologist father a computer programmer how does a, a teenager suddenly have an, a, a flirtation um yeah, with the extreme right. How how does that come about? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a good question, and I I've been thinking about it a lot myself. And it's it, the easy answer is my relationship with my dad has always been uh, a, a very bad one. Oh, unfortunately, he passed a few months ago, but um, he was very sick the last fifteen years, so we never had the time to really talk through the problems I had with him. Uh, so it actually lasted all our lives. Um, I would probably, I was, I, I left home when I was 16 and I, I didn't speak to my parents for many years and uh, I was lost and I, I was looking for a father, father uh, um, profile in, uh, in very dark uh, areas. And I obviously in the end, I, didn't, I realized I didn't find it. So I, I left this shit, but 
I did uh, um, uh, ended up in uh, in, uh, in a very in a very very bad association with very bad people for for a few years when I was a teenager, and that's a big mistake which uh, I I'm, I'm very sorry I did, uh, and I learned a lot from it, and uh, it made me I think stronger when I realized I was so wrong, but I can actually make a wrong right and left it and did something positive about about the whole situation instead. But you can see that and when people are, uh, I think when they are weak and when they are confused, uh, it's easy to, to, to catch them up. I mean, right uh, uh, winged or left wing or, or extreme uh, gangs we see today, we have a huge problem with that in Sweden, for example, it's kind of the same thing that you actually end up looking for a family, looking for respect. And uh, it's, it's sad it's happening in such a I mean, broad uh, part of, of a lot of different cultures, not only in Sweden, of course, uh, I think it's, it's everywhere in the world where you have this gang, gang pro problematics. So, I mean, it, of course, it did definitely help me to have some kind of stability from home, even though I didn't have a relation with my father, to, to actually leave my, my wrongdoings. Uh, at the same time, um, it, it's, it shouldn't happen in, uh, in a life uh, that I had, which is, was, I was, as you said, from a middle class, smart people. I had everything really served for me to be good. In, we, we lived in an okay area, but uh, I still fucked it up. So, <laughs> but okay. uh, thank God I, 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 uh, I realized that in time and I could leave it. Okay, I'll move on from that. There's... Your father taught you computer programming when you were 11, I heard. Yeah, yes. I mean, that is absolutely insane. <laughs> I mean, it, it did, did you really yeah. understand it at 11? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, he was, he was, that part actually on my dad was very good. So he's, he started to study mathematics with me when I was four and five already. So uh, I learned the seven and eighth grade mathematics when I was, before I even started school, which was good at the same time it was kind of bad because when i came to school i was very bored because i knew all these things so uh, but he, he was that, on that part of it was very good so for me computers were very exciting so the first program language i learned was basic then i learned some a little more advanced one called machine code uh, 83 uh, i haven't really programmed much since then so I, I i can't really program these days i don't think they're very relevant in these days either but it was, a, I mean, for me, it was very exciting uh, to be able to create something through programming. And that creativity uh, was very helpful uh, when we started to make music as well, to think creative and see what, what the goals were. And working with computer as, as the main um, base in the, in the songwriting. Were you going out with Jenny when you met Jonas or did you meet Jonas separately? I met Jonas on a, uh, either it was a Kraftwerk or a Depeche Mode concert in, in the southern Sweden, I think around in 1983, uh, because he loved synth music as well. So uh, he's two years older than me, but we connected very well at that time. And then we kept in contact. And through him, I got to know his, his sisters eventually, yes. And uh, yeah, I was together with Jenny for two years. Now, you formed a band called Tech Noir. Can you tell me about that? that band and the musical influences which came from from both of you yeah so uh, this was the first experiment for mixing um jonas were he loved synth music but he also loved italian italian disco uh i wasn't that fond of italian disco even though i didn't 
dislike it either. Uh, ABBA was definitely probably the pop phenomena we both liked. But then, I mean, of course, Depeche Mode and Human Lee and Soft Cell and all these bands, they were really the unifier of, of, of our music style. So I brought a little bit the, the heavier basses and he brought a little bit more the melodies. And um, so Technar was the experiment doing kind of a, uh, more a house band electro kind of ish uh, style of the music. Um, and uh, that later on when we kind of realized what direction we were going, uh, we renamed the band to Ace Base. But Ace Base was actually supposed to be Jonas and I producing other bands as a production team. So we had um, uh, in our rehearsal studio, there was several different other bands. I mean, there was one reggae band a few um, uh, studios away and the, 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 the walls were so thin that we played very loud music. So they came, they knocking on the door one day and said, can't we work with you on one song and see if we, if we can, you know, because they heard all these very heavy basses and drums. And uh, so we started to work with them on a couple of songs and uh, they thought it was great. And we thought, why? wow, this is cool to experiment with reggae beats in our music. So that's how we actually started to do kind of reggae influence. I, I wouldn't say that we do reggae, but people always say it's reggae, but it is a backbeat that is kind of reggae stylish, right? And, um, and, but we always saw ourselves as a house band. And we, when we performed, we always performed the, the, the fast 120, 124 BPM songs. Uh, but then suddenly people started like the, the slower songs, which was not as fun to perform with, especially not at nightclubs. But uh, then, I mean, it's just, well, the history is tells I mean, we have Wheel of Fortune and we have all the ones and Happy Nation. They all I want to go back a little that, bit because you're, you're yeah. jumping and there's so many things in yeah. there that I really <laughs> want to talk about. How did you finance those early days? So the great thing with, uh, well, there's two parts of that. Uh, one great thing with Sweden, which actually every songwriter, um, or, or the famous one at least, and uh, a lot of the artists as well that came out in the in the nineties and two thousand. Um, it's that the uh, the Swedish school system they allow you to do studio circles and you get funding from that to, for example, renting a, a, um, a rehearsal room. Uh, it's not a lot of funding, so you, it, it 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 bring it pays for the rehearsal room and music and cables. It doesn't pay for your synthesizers, especially not when you love samplers in the eight, end of the eighties and. I know technical stuff because we were all very expensive. So Jonas and I decided to, um, to look at how, how can we actually work as efficient as possible so we can build up the studio as fast as possible. So we were looking through all the potential jobs and the, the number one job was uh, to be a, a diver at uh, the oil platforms in Norway. Um, but the problem we realized that at that it takes like one year of education and we didn't really have the time for that, right? So the second uh, most paid job was to work also with the oil business, but to actually clean the oil uh, containers. And, and, uh, and um, that's a very dangerous job, and, but it was very well paid because it was dangerous. And we got this job, extra job, because two guys before us have jumped into the wrong container without gas mask and they died. So, um, but Jonas said we didn't really think so much. We just thought about the money. But we basically lived in these tanks for uh, every evening, every early morning, and we were always had like oil in the ears and the hair, and 
and we looked at shit. But we got a lot of money, so we can actually go back and buy these very expensive synthesizers. I mean, a sampler, Akai 1000, S1000, was 5,000 euros, and that was 1989. So it was a lot of money for us. We had no money, right? Well, our parents didn't have any money either to really spend on crazy synthesizers. So we worked a lot, and then I also started to work extra as a chef on, uh, on a ferry from uh, Gothenburg to Germany. And that was great because you got a lot of very good salary and it was only very low sea uh, tax on it as well. So we, we had double work jobs and then we put everything in the studio and then we rented out our apartments and we moved in and we lived in this little small little studio, which is as big as this little room I'm sitting in now for basically four and a half years. So well, hang on a minute. This, this sounds really weird to me. So <laughs> you and Jonas lived in a small room uh, for four and a half yeah. years, which was a studio yeah. together. I mean, uh, uh, for me, so Jonas' parents lived twenty minutes walk from the studio, so he kind of lived at home as well. So we used their uh, shower, um, and he kind of lived there. But I lived in the studio permanent, but I didn't have a shower there, so I had to go walk back and forth to the house. So. Yeah, we didn't sleep in the same bed uh, for four and a half years. We know they would have killed us. <laughs> no, I wasn't suggesting that. What I'm thinking of is that the close, you know, uh, it doesn't matter yeah. how close you are with someone, yeah. really, unless yeah. you're in a, in a relationship, but it doesn't matter how close yeah. you are with someone, when you have that sort of close yeah. confines, and even in a relationship, I would think, you're going to have arguments yeah. and you're not going to get on. That can't have been, uh, that can't have been easy. Absolutely, but it was it was it was quite uh, it was quite hysteric. We, I mean, we did no drugs, and we had there was no Red Bulls at that time. We only drank a lot of coffee, and the coffee was so strong you could put the the uh, spoon in it stood up. I mean, it was really strong coffee, and we worked uh, always forty plus hours, sometimes even fifty plus hours before we slept. So sometimes you just passed out on the floor. So that's why we I said we lived together because sometimes somebody slept on his chair. Somebody we slept on the floor because we passed out. Another person continued with the drum loop. That's how we worked for four and a half years. It was constantly just working and then passing out, basically. Now, your first gig was without the girls, wasn't it? What was that like? Was it terrible? Um, uh, uh, not really. I mean, we, we really got the girls involved to sing. And so really when we performed the first time... Uh, as a sub bass was 1990 in Gothenburg. And then the girls was with us, yeah. But the girls were not so much involved with the songwriting. They were not involved at all with the songwriting on the first album. So they were rarely in the studio. So they came in to put some vocals. Uh, they thought the room smelled very bad when we'd been there for so many hours and days and years. Um, but so but, they came in and came out. But then it's funny when you, when you think about it. So you must have been looking for voices okay yeah and the voices that you go for are his sisters and your i don't know if she was your girlfriend at that time but anyhow your ex-girlfriend let's say and her sister so in a fact in, in effect you're not really looking very widely did you did you have no. a casting did you know they had talent or did you actually test them out in the essence well we obviously knew they were singing because Jonas and, and the girls have been singing all their lives. Uh, we didn't really know that they would fit into a band. And that, that was not the purpose originally either. We, we needed somebody to put vocals on the songs. And then it was just 
more practical when we decided that actually we maybe we have something now to just send it with their vocals and it was kind of per se became the band without us really planning who should stick. so we never did the casting no and we never thought outside the box it was very much in the box <laughs> um and it just happened naturally i would say because they were sisters we knew them well and they they were very close by. I mean, they were only 20 minutes walk from the studio, so they could come in and put some vocals here and there. So it, it was a very practical choice. It was not very um, strategic, uh, to say the least. <laughs> what did creative expression give you as a human? Uh, I think I, 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 my whole personality is very creative, so I, I, I can't live a second without trying to be creative or being creative. It's my, um, it's my soul and it's... Um, uh, it's my hunger and it's my heart. It's, it, it's everything I do, even if it's not music or if, it, if it's other, other business. I, I'm very involved with a lot of different tech companies, but it's always in a creative nerve in it. And I'm, I always dream creativity, creative, wild, crazy ideas. And um, it's, it's just part of my, part of my pers persona to be creative. The day I'm not creative, I think I'm, I'm not alive anymore. I mean, one of the really fascinating things about the band is the long journey to success and the knockdowns on the way. So can you tell me a little bit about when you went out with tracks, what tracks you went out with and what reaction you got? Uh, yeah, well, obviously we started to uh, try to get a record company excited about our music in Sweden. Uh, it was the most natural thing to do. Uh, the problem was we lived in Gothenburg and uh, there was no record companies in Gothenburg. They were all based in Stockholm. And we, we didn't know anybody in Stockholm. So um, uh, it was not like we had any contacts or whatever. Um, and we did not really have any money uh, because all the money went into the studio. So we had to hitchhike with, with the trucks to Stockholm. Sometimes it could take two days to get to Stockholm. And um, this is after we, for a couple of years, have been sending demos in, in with, with post. And um, after sending over 100 tapes, different record companies, sometimes twice to the same record company, we got one response once. I think it was EMI. And uh, they basically sent the tape back and asked us to never send another tape. Um, that, that was the only response we ever got. We tried to call them, nobody picked up the phone. But, and then we said, we had to go there and knock on the door. Otherwise, they can't, and they don't listen to the tape. Um, and um, so we started to go to Stockholm and started not really knock on the door. So we, we, had, we had nowhere to sleep. So we slept on benches in parks and, and things like that. And then every morning, we were the first ones at the office. So bam, 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 bam. Have you heard our demo or not you again? You know, yes, yeah, we won't leave until you listen to our demo. So we went through most of the record companies in Sweden. We forced them to listen to the demos. And uh, that was a quite exciting uh, uh, time because nobody really thought, everybody really thought it was crap. And some, some had the guts to say it, some didn't have the balls to say it. And they, were, they, they felt sorry for us that we did so bad music. Um, some uh, gave us some directions what we're supposed to do. We should start with soul music instead or other examples. Um, and then I think after the third or fourth trip to Stockholm, um, we, um, we started to look, look outside Sweden because we realized nobody in Sweden likes our music. 
Um, but at the same time, we started to look at, at, uh, at Denmark uh, because Denmark had a, a label called Coma and they did um, licensing for KLF, Rosanna, Shaman, a lot of really cool bands out of uh, the UK. And we really love that kind of that style. So we want to be in contact with Coma and that was a sub-label of Mega Records, but they were based in Denmark. Um, so we kind of tried to find a way of contact them, was not very successful. But at the same time, we got a, because I was DJing a little bit, so I got a vinyl from an from a, um, organization called Swimix, which worked with all the DJs in Sweden, and they, they send vinyls uh, every month. And then suddenly we had this white vinyl with no marks. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Prior to this, just a few weeks before, we went basically through all our collections of, 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 of vinyls, both Jonas and I, and we have thousands of albums and 12 inches and so forth. And we couldn't find one producer. So because we says, okay, if we have a magic wand, who do we want to work with? For some reason, we didn't even think that Quincy Jones fit in because we did have a Michael Jackson album there too. But we couldn't find somebody who we thought would fit our music that we, we knew we were missing something, especially in the beat and so forth. But we didn't really know what. And we listened to all that. Nothing, nothing really fit. And then some of this white label comes and we, we play it and we hear this beat and we say wow this is what we've been looking for who is this and uh, it took a while for us to realize the band was there was a singer called Kayo she didn't write the song she didn't produce and who is this producer and the producer was called Dennis Pop and um, so we wanted to meet this guy and it was completely unknown so we went to Stockholm for a final trip and uh, went to the office and uh, then uh, René Hedemir was the, 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 the CEO of Swimix he was there but Dennis Pop was in the studio he said Sorry, he's going to be busy for six months. He's working with this dentist and uh, working with the dentist. I mean, we are from Gothenburg. You have to listen to the demo. And he actually promised, yeah, I'm going to give this demo to, to Dennis Pop when he's done in the studio. So um, then we didn't really hear anything from this. Finally, the Danish, we got contact with the Mega, Mega Records and, um, and uh, they, they called back. And uh, at that time, it was actually one record company in Sweden who decided maybe these guys have something but their biggest problem was at in the early 90s uh, the record stores were um it was first of all it was obviously a b c d in order but it also was it was rock pop synth heavy metal soul jazz and uh, this first record company telegram they had no clue where to how to label us because we did like synth music pop music reggae we did house music, electro, we did so many different styles 
So they didn't know how to label it and how to market it. So we knew that when we recorded Wheel of Fortune that he had no clue what to do with us. At the same time, Mega Records calls us from Denmark who had the label coma and said, don't sign anything with anybody. We understand you. We understand all of your songs. And this is Martin Dodd from, from, uh, from uh, uh, Mega Records who later became head of uh, uh, A&R at, uh, at the Somba. And um, so he don't sign, and of course, to be already signed our several albums and so forth. But we had a discussion with the owner of, of, of Telegram and what to do with us, right? And he said, actually, no, I don't. Uh, he just came back from, from uh, London, and Acid was just a big thing, and Sirens. And, well, we're not the Acid band. We're not, you don't know. Is it okay if we buy back the tapes? Uh, because we had recorded a video for like, $1,000 and the master tapes were like $2,000 for the single. And he said, okay, no problem. And then, so Mega Records basically bought us for a little bit less than $2,000, the whole contract. And uh, then we were signed to, to Mega Records. And then they released the first single and it just went straight up top 10 in Denmark. And then the same in Norway. And it was a big success. And I remember actually uh, uh, MTV, because we had this text TV and uh, they had all the shorts from around Europe and also from Israel. And we saw Wheel of Fortune number seven on the MTV text TV uh, short in Denmark. That was actually one of the biggest moments in my life. Uh, I still remember it as yesterday when you saw, wow, we are on the short outside of Sweden. It's fantastic, it was big. So then we, um, uh, we had to follow up with the second single. And then we thought, I mean, we have to work with Dennis Pop now because then we actually heard this dentist album and that was Dr. Alba. And uh, we thought, I mean, this guy really has something. So we called, and then when we called uh, Swimmix, they connected us to, to Dennis Pop immediately. He said, you know, he's been looking for you guys for six months, nine months, what? So we got hold of Dennis Pop and he said, um, Actually, I got the demo tape when I was in the studio going back and forth from home and recording Dr. Alban, and the tape got stuck in my car. My radio was broken. I couldn't get the tape out. I've been listening on, you got, on this tape, demo tape with eight songs for nine months now, and I really love your music. So he said, let's get to Stockholm and start working. And two months later, we recorded all the songs. The interview with Ulf will continue in a second, but please subscribe. It helps me, and you'll hear about the newest interviews directly. Now, here is Ulf again, full of surprises. We make USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at usaa.com slash bundle. USAA. Restrictions apply. I'm going to unpack that a little bit because there's a few things there. <laughs> uh, first of all, rejection. As a as a yeah. creative person, rejection is very hard, and it is. you really the way you you tell it. I know you've told these stories uh, probably a million times in in your career, and and so, um, and I'm not saying they change over time, but they they become easier to tell. I've 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 been there, you know. I do that as well, um, and you've told it in a way that rejection didn't matter. You just got up and moved on and did something. But doesn't rejection hurt? Isn't rejection really hard? You want to you want to achieve something. You want it to be a successful band, and you're getting knocked down and even told basically, don't ever contact us again. 
Yeah, and and it, I mean, it was, it was like they put up the chainsaw, right? So <laughs> completely said we were completely talent and had no talent. It was horrible. I think the the this it, it comes down a little bit to um, uh, to youth. I think because when you're young, you're very naive, and some weird self-confidence that I have really hard to because uh, I try to find the formula to get this self-confidence because if I had that formula I could maybe teach it to people but we just had this weird self-confidence that we are good and they are wrong and uh, and it's uh, very hard to say why because I mean even Jonah's parents and my parents they didn't like our music Jonah's sisters didn't like the music <laughs> so it was it was only Jonas and I who liked the music, but we were so stubborn. We were so stubborn, naive, and said everyone is wrong and we are right. And I, 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 can't, I don't really have a good answer. Trust me, I've tried to find the formula how we can get so stupidly stubborn. But without that stubbornness, we wouldn't have the band today, today or or then either, right? So. I'm very thankful for being so stubborn, but it's just, uh, it's a, I, I, so to, to answer your question, I don't know. You know, the other it's thing just, is that you mentioned, yeah. I mean, the mid eighties, 85, Sten Halstrom made a statement about uh, remixes and uh, how Sweden could contribute. And this was sort of the basis of where Sweemix came up and where Dennis Pop and of course then Telegram being associated uh, with that. You were in Gothenburg, but weren't you aware of this sort of movement that was happening in, in Stockholm at the time? Um, we were aware of the, the thing is we had a few DJs in Gothenburg who were in some kind of, you know, they were in championships in Europe and they were winning. So they, had a, they had knowledge of what's going on around in Europe. I, I don't think we were so much aware of what's going on underground in Stockholm specifically. Uh, I think I knew more about Dusseldorf music because of the King Clam studio or maybe the London underground music style, you know, than I, I, that I listened to Sweden. Well, there was a few bands in Stockholm that was great that we followed. Uh, they were actually all signed to, at that time, a record company called Stranded that was owned by the same owner that uh, had a, a Telegram. Uh, so that's we, we had some kind of a connection with the kind of synth new wave um, in Sweden. However, we were looking much more to UK on music influences and a little bit of Germany too, rather than Stockholm. So we didn't know uh, really what was going on, except for these few bands that came out in Swedish in from Stockholm. Now the other thing is, and this is this is a little bit of a joke by me, but uh, with Dennis Pop having the CD and it, you know, playing uh, endlessly, revolving in his car, you know, I talked to Raz of Robin Raz recently, and he told me exactly the same story about his father <laughs> and a track that was playing his car. So what is wrong with Swedish cars? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th this this was uh, I think this was. Uh, um, not the Swedish car, I think it was an American car, this one, the stereo was Japanese for sure. I, yes, that's a good question, what, what's wrong with the cars that they get stuck? But uh, I think we both, both Robert and, and Acebase can be very uh, happy that uh, uh, some of the stereo system breaks down sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on from that, the, um, Dennis Pop, uh, he obviously created, in a sense, then the sound that was uh, Ace of Bass. How did that sound diverge from the original demos 
that you had uh, created with uh, Jonas? So uh, Dennis Pop's magic fingers was not to add anything. It was actually to, to erase things, to minimize things, simplify things. And that was his very unique talent. Uh, I mean, Dennis Pop couldn't play any instruments, but he had a very good ear. So basically the first thing he did with all our songs we, that we worked with him was actually basically to take out 50% of the melodies. Boom, out, gone. And some, some melodies, for example, some of the melodies that we had in all the Chavons that we had to take out from the, from the track became Happy Nation later on. So it was not like they completely disappeared. Some of the tracks, some of the hook lines, we ended up in songs later on. Uh, but he simplified things. And also he was amazing when it came to doing drum beats. Um, and this is also from a technical point of view. We were working uh, with a program called um, Cubase and Cubase um, grooves were not very groovy. Uh, it was very stiff, very uh, computerized. They, he was working with, um, uh, working with Logic, which they had a little error in the, in the, in the sync clock. So it actually, the, the grooves moved around a little bit. So it was much better and easier to do good grooves with this program. We didn't work at all the same way. We worked very different. And, and um, um, so when he, he obviously he completely killed all our drums, everything, and we built it up from scratch. And he just had his magic finger for what, what actually worked both on radio and in the dance floor. And also another thing that was very helpful was that he played he played every evening in different nightclubs. So you can take the tape, demo tape, go to the nightclub, test it live, check out what part did work and what didn't work because you see the audience, how they react, and then go back to the studio afterwards and change these parts and add something and then test it again. So we could, we went back and forth, back and forth and tested it live, how, what, what was working, which was incredible to actually have that tool at hand. And that's really how Dennis Pop created his, the perfect, I mean, rhythms and the buildup of songs and so forth that became the famous Swedish sound, Sherian sound. I mean, the famous Swedish sound, I mean, you, you were so successful and uh, in the States, which was not <laughs> usual at that time at all. How did you come to the attention of America? Um, yeah, well, that's also an interesting story because um, we, um, after conquering, well, Nordics with Mega Records, and we started to work with the Polygram, which is now Universal in Europe and UK. Of course, UK for us was in enormous market, and we were very flattered that actually we did start to play on top ten, and, and we started to do top of the pops and all that stuff. And of course, you know what, MTV. Not forget MTV. That we, without MTV, I'm not sure we would have the success because MTV just picked up all that she wants and started to play it so much. And through MTV, different channels in Europe, and of course also in America. But when it comes to America specifically, um, uh, Clive Davis, who is probably still today the biggest legend in record industry, um, uh, had this record company called Arista Record, which which our record company, a little record company in Denmark, really wanted to work with him. He, I mean, he founded so many different bands over the years, and um, uh, we were rejected three times. Uh, by Clive, he didn't like music, he couldn't see the fit in America and so forth. And then the summer 93, he was in Europe and uh, he started to 
he was on the boat and he was in, in Spain and then in France and then in Italy. And everywhere he went, on restaurants, nightclub, radio, uh, um, bars, they all played uh, Jones, or actually a happy nation as well at that time. So he was very surprised to hear that everywhere, how big impact we had in Europe. So when he came to, back to New York, apparently there's a lot, was a few DJs who had picked up the songs when they were touring and played in Europe, like in Ibiza and uh, south of France and uh, Greece and so forth, picked up all the ones and they started to play it on radio in, in America. So we started to kind of bubble on some lists in America and he was reading about it. And then he made a decision to actually sign us up, but it was, it took a few years for him to say no, say no, say no. And then he just realized I probably should actually get onto the train. Of course, his version is that he immediately heard that we were a success, but that's not really the full <laughs> true story. And then, of course, he did a fantastic job um, reforming it a bit because, I mean, we were kind of surprised working in America. It's very different from Europe, obviously. And um, fame in America is it's on a completely different level than, than in, but you have kind of a little bit, obviously, star, larger than life thing in, in the UK, but. We, in Sweden, we don't really have that stuff. And I'm very happy that we were from Gotham. We're very simple people. But in, in America, you could become so big when you're famous, right? So they really lift you up in the sky. And if you believe the hype, you're in trouble. Uh, I think we were lucky that we kind of had our foots on the ground. But um, uh, Clive said, I, I need more singles. Otherwise, I won't release the album. And we had that time already sold 7 million albums and released like five singles that were hit. And it was like, Clive, we just started to record our second album now. So you better release the first one, otherwise you're gonna miss the second one. No, 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 no. I'm not releasing any albums here and no singles before I have two more hits. Uh, wow. And that was a tough discussion with him, trust me. But of course he was right. So he came to Stock to Gothenburg and he was listening to songs that we were preparing for the second album. And he picked four songs, and two of them is The Sign, and the second album was supposed to be called The Sign, and then it was Don't Turn Around. And, um, and they became obviously very big hits in America. And when we got that, he said, now we have the album, now we have the hit, now we go. And then after that, we sold 25 million albums instead. <laughs> so he was right, even though it didn't make sense at all for us in the beginning, but that was a very healthy, unusual argument that we had. Success brings many different things. You mentioned fame and you mentioned that Sweden deals with it slightly differently. Uh, fame brings enormous attention. It brings pressures. And if you're in a band, it brings interpersonal pressures uh, in the brand. It brings a lot of money. And that money, although it's, you know, would be wonderful to earn a lot of money. On the other side, there's also the pressure of dealing with that, that money. And also as a band, there was a negative aspect that um, Ace of Base were, and it's a little bit like ABBA were at the beginning. They weren't treated really seriously uh, as musicians at the beginning. And over time, that seems to have changed. But how did all those pressures uh, sort of affect the relationships within the band? Um, yeah, that's a few questions uh, in one question. Um, I if I start with the um, the critics of the Swedish, well, of, of, of our music, I think the main critics came from Sweden. I, I, however, there was probably critics everywhere, of course, but 
uh, I think in America we we got a, a very good we 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 uh, we uh, had a lot of good press for the music because they thought it was so unique, and I think the Amer in the American society can actually appreciate when you are unique and um, uh, and so forth. But in Sweden, we had a very similar story to ABBA that they really killed us in media in Sweden. <laughs> they, they said basically the same thing that the record companies have said, that we were the worst thing ever came out. They were ashamed they were Swedish. Somebody described a music that it was like somebody who had uh, thrown a rotten uh, uh, spaghetti in the face, uh, kind of that level of, 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 uh, of of criticism in Sweden. So we, we basically stopped reading Swedish newspapers because it was not nothing good in it at all. Uh, I think around the world, it kind of became a, more of a positive phenomena with the pop and positive energy and, and, and message. I think um, pop music haven't been really on the tracks at the, at the time and also in the US, there's a lot of hip hop, a lot of soul, but it was not that much pop. So we kept, I mean, timing wise for us was, per, was perfect music wise. Um, so um, from a creative point of view, I, I, we, we just stopped listening to the, to the negative thing. We just tried to focus on the positive. And then we were so busy as, as well because we, we were basically traveling around the world 24 seven doing interviews in every corner of the planet. Uh, Japan one day and the US the other day, then Brazil, then Germany, then the UK, and then back and forth. So we didn't really have time to follow up all the media either. We had quite, we became a little bit more structured uh, after, after a while, not just being us four and, and, and doing it ourselves. We had obviously the, the back end of, of Mega Records and then of course with Universal and Polygram and then later on with Aris as well. But of course, the other backside of being very successful uh, hit us quite hard with uh, the incident um, uh, end of 93 uh, with Jenny, where we had a crazy fan uh, that broke in uh, to her apartment, to her house uh, with a big knife. And uh, she woke up with a fan uh, holding a knife to her throat. The crazy German fan, woman, which is this big, big uh, woman. And she basically stabbed uh, through the oak door with the knife. And, um, um, and then she woke up with, uh, with, with her sitting on her with a knife on her throat. And uh, luckily, Jenny can speak a little bit German because this girl didn't speak any, any English. And she said, I need, I need to see your mom. I need to see your mom. And, um, and the, the parents were living upstairs uh, and the other siblings were not home. They were kind of semi-living with their girlfriend, boyfriends. Uh, so she was the only child at home. And uh, so the, the, the fan brings her with a knife on her throat and drags her up the, the stairs. And then um, they wake up the mom and the mom comes out and she stabs the mom and she gets the hand up. She, she, puts this knife through the hand and then stabs another time. And then the father wakes up and they could wrestle her down and call the police. But it was, it was a very, um, very traumatic uh, hour of a hostile and violent situation in their home. And this is also a place where she was born. And after having so much success in the world, this is the only safe place you have. And being attacked in your bed, in your home, where you've been basically born in this house, uh, was uh, such a viol vi violation of her privacy that was very difficult to 
to handle. And after that moment, our lives went from, wow, it's great to be famous. And uh, it's such a freedom to be famous because you can get in anywhere. And you know, suddenly we had to have enormous security, um, um, really advanced security, bodyguards, a lot of bodyguards and live in uh, hidden homes and secret addresses, changing names and hotels. And, and uh, we lived with that security measures for over 10 years. Because um, there was a lot of, I mean, a lot of, and this was a fan who loved us. But I mean, if you look at what happened with John Lennon, it was also a fan, right? And it, in America, it happens quite a lot. I, I, I have, I've noticed the last 20 years, there's actually been a lot of attacks by fans in the US specifically. So it's not, it's not like it's, it's unique, unfortunately. It happens all the time, but it's very unique for Sweden. And I think it's quite unique for Europe that this happened, especially at that time. So that changed everything for us. Uh, when were enough, you at the time? Yeah, was, when did you, do you remember the moment you heard about it? Yeah, I was actually, uh, we were supposed to do some recording. So I was in, I didn't live in Gothenburg at that time. I lived in Spain or London. I think I lived in London at that time, but I was in Gothenburg. We were supposed to record something. We just came back from Brazil, We've been touring there. And uh, so I basically, I got a phone call in the middle of the night when I, when I heard it. So, and then of course, the first thing that happens when Jenny goes to the police station to take photo on her with, with blood on her pyjama, pyjamas and the, and the, the uh, intruder uh, and the knife and all that stuff. And, and some police guy sold this for like, you know, 500 euros to the media. And the next day it was world news. I mean, it was front news everywhere. It was not 93, it was 94, because we were big in America at that time. So it was world news everywhere. CNN, BBC, uh, Fox News, uh, you name it. It was everywhere. And uh, that was the last thing we wanted was actually pictures with Jenny completely in blood in the morning. So, so but that's how media works, right? And also, unfortunately, leaks from, from police stations as well, everywhere in the world. I was just surprised they did it from Sweden, because uh, here we normally have a little bit more control over these things, but it, it just changed our lives completely after that day. Yeah, but we decided to continue, uh, which was good. It was very strong of Jenny to, 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 um, to be able to handle this because it was not that we had time to take a six month break here. We were in completely middle of a promotion tour, next album, uh, touring, blah, blah, blah. So there was this show must go on. And, but she still, had, I mean, she's still working on, on the issue still today. 30 years later, almost. I mean, I remember um, reporting on the story on MTV News mm -hmm. and it being a totally shocking a story that I'd never, you know, I'd never reported on something so shocking uh, mm -hmm. um, before. And clearly that was a moment where it, as you said, it changed the band forever. And in essence, I presume it was, even though the band carried on for a while, it was in essence um, the beginning uh, of the end uh, for the band. Were you aware immediately that this was it in terms of long-term? No, uh, not at that time because we were so focused on doing our jobs and basically it's a little bit like you are in water up to here to the nose and you kind of, you don't have the millimeters uh, to, you don't have any margins in anything. 
we were so much into trying to uh, do our best in the, for, for all the record companies that were dragging us around the world and also to tour and also to create new music for the next album and the next album after that. So we kind of didn't see it coming uh, that this, but it, it's, you're completely right. This is actually the beginning of the end, even though that end lasted for quite some time, but it did change the band a lot and it did change Marlin, especially uh, this specific event that she, because she she was not very happy traveling with us from the beginning and the more pressure she got and the more pressure the band got the more um, distance she wanted to be from the band but she was kind of the main singer in the band and also especially when we when we hit in America um, Clyde Davis wanted her to really front the band much more. We knew the problems that she did not want to front the band. We wanted Jenna to front much more, but Clive didn't accept that. So he completely recut the videos in America. So we only saw it Marlin suddenly. And that was the last thing we wanted to do. So she got even more focus. And then when this accident happened or this viol violation happened, uh, of course, this didn't really help Marlin's state of mind either of being a pop star and she didn't want to speak about her life and she didn't like, she's, she's had a lot of integrity. And um, for her, this was definitely the, 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 the sign for her to, I don't really like this at all. I want to get out. So, I mean, she wanted to leave the band already end of 93, but we kind of begged her to stay in the band. So uh, I think there was, there was a few, few reasons why this was the beginning of the end. Um, but we, we, we were more focused on the problem with Marlin rather than uh, this specific incident because there was a lot of incidents with not this dangerous, of course, but more smaller incidents that were, was also problematic during the, the ride. You mentioned earlier about um, the influence or the, you know, that this was a band that brought pop music back to the charts in America at that time. And today, you know, you have people like Lady Gaga, uh, Katy Perry, who cite Ace of Bass and, uh, and your music as being very important to them. Um, how does that make you feel? Well, incredible crowd, proud, of course. It's just, uh, these are amazing, uh, talented stars, artists, songwriters. Uh, and I, which I also actually share the, 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 their music. I love their music. I listen to their music. Um, and um, I'm very flattered to see that they have taken uh, our son and developed it and made it their own and done something else. This is what we call evolution in music and evolution in, in culture. Uh, so I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy and flattered for it. And uh, of course, our uh, Swedish producers have, and songwriters like Max Martin, for example, have done an enormous, fantastic job of, of, of holding this Swedish pop phenomena alive for so many years. And then the, he was always the prodigy from, from Dennis Pop. And now from, from Max Martin, we have Shellback and all these other guys taking over. So it's kind of a never ending production of Swedish songwriters and producers uh, coming out still today, which is, um, which is amazing. I'm very proud of the whole ecosystem that we created here in Sweden, in Stockholm. Now, I know that Ace of Base went on and I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm going to ignore that part because we're sort of running out of time. And then, you know, you had two other different singers. You had a hiatus, you know, you've had the comebacks and so on and so forth. But you yourself uh, 
went into tech, didn't you? And you um, are now an investor in tech. What does that give you that creating music didn't? Um, well, I think tech and music for me always have been married because we've worked with tech and computers and of course synthesizers, samplers all our lives. So that's a natural part of tech. And I, I, as we discussed earlier, I was, when I was a young kid, a programmer. So I was always excited about the tech, tech industry. And in the mid nineties, I started to be involved with a few music tech companies and uh, more as an investor. Um, and then of course we had the famous dot-com crash 2000. And then I was a little confused. Is this completely a dream that this should work or not? And but of course, as we see today, that we were not wrong. We were just too early at that time. But I got involved very early on with tech. I was very excited about it. And I founded a lot of companies, uh, in, especially within the music tech industry. Um, uh, amongst those, uh, one company, we, uh, it's an ed tech company that we work together with Gibson um, to teach people to learn how to play uh, guitar. Um, but for me, this is a very, as another way of getting my creative nerve um, um, uh, to work and, and get my, my crazy ideas out when I work with these different, especially with app technologies. But I'm, 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 I'm laying much more and more into impact investments as well. So we're doing a big project, a few projects in Africa to help entrepreneurs become uh, uh, more, get tools and the education they need uh in uh, south africa and uh, kenya and rwanda and so forth so that's that's something i'm i'm it's really close to my heart to take my experience with the music and also with the tech and try to help um uh, different societies outside of europe oh just one final question are you still in contact with jonas jenny and marlin i'm in contact with jonas uh marlin i haven't seen for Actually, I spoke about this uh, with someone a few days ago. I don't even remember when I saw Mona last time, but it probably is soon as 20. I haven't seen it for 18 years at least. Uh, Jenny and I meet once in a while in Gothenburg. We go with our kids to the big fun field there called uh, Liseberg. Uh, we meet and we do some rides together. Uh, we don't really have regular contact. Jonas and I, we do speak on the phone. Uh, normally a few times a year, uh, sometimes more intense when there's something that's going on. Uh, because I, I do work very actively with the band. We work with the, with the documentary now and we, we're doing um, a lot of syncs with the movies and uh, remixes. And I work in a lot of different universities and schools and so forth uh, with the band. So sometimes I need to have Jonas on board on these projects. Um, but he's, he's very, very happy to be in, um, in, uh, in Gothenburg and uh, Marlon is in Gothenburg and, and, and uh, Jenny is in Gothenburg. So we don't really interact too much, just only when we have to interact. Um, I think we all have different interests. They all like a silent life. And I, I'm kind of the opposite. I, I like to travel. I have my adventures around the world, but kind of traveling the same way as I did during the band days. <laughs> Sounds fab fabulous. Well, listen, it's wonderful to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy that you seem happy and, and content in your life and uh, you achieve so much um, in terms of music. And I'm sure you're going to achieve as much in the tech area. So Ulf Egbert, thank you. 
and uh, hope to see you again soon. Maybe in a bar in Gothenburg, but you're in Stockholm. Yeah, Stockard. hopefully. That make hopefully sense. So, I will be going to Stockholm, so I'll see you there. It's, <laughs> it's so nice to just hear your voice. It brings back so many good memories. So it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Steve. Up there is an interview I recommend. Down there is where you can find all the podcast interviews. And here is where you can connect. We made USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply.